Welcome to Served Neat. I'm your host, Jen Hartman. I am wildly obsessed with marketing, sales, business, and the bottom line. I left corporate America with $3,000 in my bank account and a dream of becoming a successful entrepreneur. In the last two years, I grew my marketing consultancy to multiple six figures, worked with over 160 CEOs, and even started my very own fashion brand. In this podcast, I'll be serving up my best kept secrets to help you grow and scale your business. Each week, you'll hear from myself along with other entrepreneurs. You'll learn about what it actually takes to grow a brand, the ups, the downs, and everything in between. Pour yourself a glass of bourbon and get ready to take notes because it is time to dive into this week's episode. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Served Neat. Last week, I had the opportunity to chat with Fran Hauser. I read Fran's book, The Myth of the Nice Girl, a few months ago and just knew I needed to get her on a Zoom call to have a conversation about giving feedback to your team, boundaries, people-pleasing, and more. Before we get into the episode, let me tell you a bit about our guest. Fran Hauser is passionate about leveling the playing field for women. She does this through her investing, writing, and speaking. Fran has invested in over 30 female-founded companies across consumer tech, CPG, media, publishing, and wellness. She is the best-selling author of The Myth of the Nice Girl, Achieving a Career You Love Without Becoming a Person You Hate, which has been translated into six different languages and was named Best Business Book of the Year, 2018 by Audible. Fran's newest book, Embrace the Work, Love Your Career, is quickly becoming the go-to for women seeking more joy and fulfillment in their careers. Fran regularly speaks at conferences and organizations to help women build careers they love while staying true to themselves. Much of her current work is informed by 15 years spent in media, where she rose through the ranks at Time Inc. to president of digital. She lives outside of New York City with her husband and two sons. All right, let's dive in. Hey, Fran, how's it going? Hi, Jen. I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing lovely this morning. Thank you for asking. I'm so excited to have you here. I know that we were kind of chatting before we got into it, but I am obsessed with your book, your first book. I have not read your second book, which we will get into. So yeah, I'm stoked for this interview. So anyways, I read your book a few months back, The Myth of the Nice Girl, and it totally resonated with me. What inspired you to write a book on this topic? Well, you know, it's interesting. Over the course of my career, I've done so much mentoring. You know, I've just had so many like amazing conversations with, especially with younger women that are, you know, really kind of in the early to like mid-level, you know, parts of their careers. And this question would just always come up around like, how, how can I be so nice and still be successful, you know, because there's this myth, right? That nice girls don't get the corner office. Um, And that if you're too nice, you're not going to get ahead. So I just found um, myself talking quite a bit about this topic and this leadership style that I've always um, espoused and, you know, really believe in this idea of like, you can, you can be nice and you can still be strong. You know, you can, you can lead um, with both kindness and strength. And 
it's something that I think has really served me well, you know, over the course of, of my career. And also what was interesting was when I looked around, like I remember like going to bookstores to see if I could find a book on this topic. And the only books that I could find were the opposite. You know, it's like nice girls don't get the corner office. So I just, I, I felt like there was like real white space um, uh, for, the, for this type of book. And I have to tell you that the real tipping point for me in deciding to write it was this blog post that I wrote for Forbes called Nice Girls Finish First. And it ended up being one of their most popular blog posts in this mentoring series that they were doing. I started hearing from women all around the country. Um, and so it just really validated the idea. And, uh, you know, book publishers um, like that. They like seeing that, okay, the idea has already been validated. There's a real pain point here and there's a market. So that was sort of, that was the tipping point, I would say. Oh, I love that. So I'm actually in the process of writing my first book. And the fact that you brought up that your idea was already validated, you wrote a blog on it, the blog really picked up steam, like, very, very cool. I didn't know that about the book. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting too, Jen, because, you know, as a startup investor, which that's really my, my day job, you know, I'm always listening to pitch decks and meeting with founders and, you know, I talk to them a lot about traction, you know, how can you show early traction in your business idea? And it's very similar, you know, when you're writing a book, um, if you can show a book publishing, right, just like a founder pitches an investor, um, an aspiring author is pitching a, a publisher, if you can show that there's a validation, it de-risks the investment for them. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. So let's get into your book a little bit more. Yeah. I loved your section in chapter one, where you talk about how nice is your capital. It was such a great section in the book. Can you explain what you mean by this for those who haven't read the book yet? Yeah. So, I mean, really what I mean is that when you're, when you're nice to someone, it allows you to build trust and every relationship is based on trust. Um, and I really believe that to be successful in business, it's all about relationships. So it's this sort of like, you know, nice builds trust, which builds relationships, which builds business. <laughs> and for me, like the story that, that I love to share, you know, I have so many stories over the course of my career um, where, you know, I was nice and there was like a real benefit. Not that I was being manipulative or strategic, but there was a real business benefit. And the one story that I really like to share is when I was working at Time Inc., which was the world's largest magazine publisher, and I was running the digital business, and we were working on launching People Magazine's website, people.com. Um, in order for me to be successful in my job, I was really dependent on getting technology resources, and Mitch Clave was the head of technology for the company, right? So he decided how his tech resources got allocated, and I had such a wonderful relationship with Mitch, you know? And I think so much of it came from the fact that um, I didn't only call him when something was going wrong, which is as, as the tech guy, right? Like that's when people call. It's like my computer's not working, the internet's down, the website's down. And I really made such an effort to get to know him as a human being and, and to, to express gratitude when things went well. Someone on his team did a really great job. I let him know, I let the CEO know. And it allowed us to build a really strong relationship. And I have to tell you, and, and he would, he would, you know, validate this. 
um, that if I were asking him for resources and someone else was asking him for resources and our projects had similar projected ROIs, guess who was going to get the resources, right? The person who he has a stronger relationship with. So I think, you know, I just, I have so many examples like that over the course of my career. Um, so, which is why, like, I really advocate if you're just genuinely a nice person, like, don't check that quality at the door when you go to work, because it can really, first of all, you should be yourself, right? Because you're going to be more comfortable in your own skin when you're behaving in a way that's aligned with your values, right? Um, but also being nice can really serve you well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that too. I love the way that you explain that. Many of my listeners are female founders who manage small teams. Part of managing a team, as you know, it involves giving feedback. What is your advice on giving feedback that is both direct and kind? So when I was writing the book, I did a lot of research around the way that our brain works. And I especially wanted to understand, um, you know, when you're giving feedback, when you're receiving feedback, like how did your brain process that? And one of the things that I came across is this idea that, you know, our amygdala is basically all about like sensing threat. Um, and when it senses threat, it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be psychological. Um, it triggers that fight, flight, or freeze response. And it became really clear to me that, you know, when you're about to give feedback, especially if it's tough feedback, if it's news that's maybe a little bit harder to share, it's so important that you start out in a way that's positive, that you're not triggering that amygdala by coming across as threatening in any way, right? So even just starting out by saying like, I'm your biggest fan, you know, I, I'm, I wanna see you be successful at this company. I want, I want you to be here for a really long time, you know, like just starting in a way that's really positive as opposed to like, look, we have some things we need to talk about, right? That's going to like trigger, that's going to trigger the amygdala. So starting off in a really positive way um, is something that I always recommend. I also recommend asking questions that can help the person that you're giving feedback to really be a part of the conversation and maybe sometimes even come up with a feedback on their own. Like, I love just asking a question like, what do you think could have been done differently? Not what do you think you could have done differently? Because again, that could be threatening, but in this situation, what do you think could have been done differently? And I can't tell you, Jen, how many times I've asked that question and the person who I'm asking the question of will come up with the, oh, you know what? Maybe I could have, I could have done a better job of fill in the blank, you know? So I think asking questions is really helpful. Um, the other thing I would say is be specific then about the feedback. You do want to give direct feedback. Like I once had a manager who was so nice that like she was like, it bordered on like, she, she was wishy-washy. You know, she would just like sugarcoat everything. And that wasn't helpful. Like she was trying to give me feedback. And I remember walking away from that conversation, not understanding what she wanted me to work on. So it is really important that after you do all that, you're positive, you're asking questions, that you do actually give specific feedback. And then the last thing I'll say about this, um, which I have found to be really effective, is to end the meeting with shared next steps. So not just like, here's what you're going to do and we're going to check in in three months, but here's my commitment to you. So like, for example, if, if one of the pieces of feedback is that you'd like to see them develop 
relationships in a certain sector because they're, they work in business development, right? And maybe the feedback is, I, want, I really want to see you grow business in the technology sector. Maybe my next step as the manager is to say, I'm going to introduce you to three people, right? So like, I'm going to get that started for you. So think about how you would feel. Like now you're leaving that conversation feeling like, oh gosh, like my manager is really in it with me. Like, right, she really wants me to be successful. She's going to be supportive. She's going to be helpful. So I really love the idea of like starting out positive and ending positive in a way that's like, okay, I'm here to support you. Here's what I'm going to do to help you. Yes. That's like a better spin on the, I'm going to butcher this one. It's like the feedback sandwich or whatever, you know what I mean? Where it's like positive, negative, positive, but I like how you spun it with at the end saying like, kind of, what do you need for me? Like, how can I get you there? Because that just feels like such a good way to end that conversation. And like, yes, you're really invested in this person's personal development. So thank you for sharing that one. That was so good. I hope everybody's taking notes right now. (laughs) All right, let's chat boundaries. As business owners, we often find ourselves saying yes to projects that are way out of scope or answering emails on the weekends when we should really be shutting down and resting. How do you recommend communicating your boundaries to clients? And part number two here, do you have any tips on keeping yourself accountable with those boundaries? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's really, um, it's really important to be clear on what your boundaries are. Like, it's actually really great to say something like, you know, I don't check emails after six o'clock at night. If there's something really urgent, you can always text me. But guess what? Most people won't because you're setting the boundary, right? You're saying like, I kind of, I check out after six o'clock at night, right? If there's something that's like an exception, you know, really, really urgent, you can text me. Um, And I have to tell you, like, I am seeing in this post-COVID world that we're living in, people are, I think, being much better about setting boundaries. They're, I've heard from, from, gosh, just over the last couple of months, a handful of people have said to me, um, I don't check emails after, you know, whatever that time is. Um, so that's something that I would really recommend. Otherwise, you're always accessible. You're always on. And you're just going to be more likely to burn out which is not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for the people that you love. It's not good for work, right? So setting those boundaries is really important. And the other thing that I would say that um, I've had to work on over the course of my career, because I am such a people pleaser, is really being thoughtful about what I say yes to and what I say no to, even to the point of like every email that I get that's asking me to participate in something, you know, my knee jerk reaction is always to say yes, because I am like deep down, I'm I'm that people pleaser. I have to literally like stop myself and ask, is this aligned with my priorities or is this something that's going to bring me joy? And it's just something that I want to do. Right. But I always have to like press pause and ask myself those questions before I respond. Um, and if the answer is no, which more often it's no, then it, then it is yes, right? If the answer is no, um, you don't have to over-explain the no. Like you don't, you don't have to write two or three paragraphs because I find that when you do that, you're now giving the other person an in to negotiate with you. Like literally, it's just two lines. It's thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm heads down working on whatever it is you're working on. 
So I won't be able to participate. And I wish you the best of luck. And that's, it's like two lines. That's it, right? Like the more concise you are, the more clear you are. And by the way, that was a kind no, right? You're starting out by saying, thank you. You're, you're ending with a positive sentiment. Um, but I cannot stress enough to really check in with yourself before you say yes. I love that. And I love the advice of just keeping it short and sweet. You're going to die. So yesterday I had plans to meet up with my mom and her fiance to do like a trivia night and our garage door broke and I couldn't shut it. And my fiance wasn't home and I like couldn't leave the house with the garage door open. So I text my mom and I'm like, mom, I can't come to trivia. I know this sounds like a weird excuse, but the garage door is broken and I can't close the garage door, but here's a picture for proof. Like I like needed this like long extended reason for why I said no and a picture to prove that I wasn't crazy with the garage door being broken and as soon as I sent it I was like why did I do that like why did I feel the need to like give this elaborate response for why I couldn't do something right I mean it right so yeah so it's like first of all it's such a waste of your time right (laughs) for starters you're taking the picture you're texting it right and versus just like knowing and understanding that like your mom is going to get it. And she, of course she's going to believe you, you know, like it's so that's hysterical. That is so funny. <laughs> it felt like a dog ate my homework kind of excuse. Yes. I'm like, yes. like who, well, how does this happen? Like, why does this happen? And this is so ridiculous. So, but yeah, I, I feel that. like us women are so like, we always feel like we need to like over explain our no because we are people pleasers. Because and- we are where does that come from? Like, do you have any idea where people pleasing is developed? Is it childhood? Is it adulthood? It's really? Okay. Tell me more. Well, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely childhood. And it's, um, it's, it even starts like in the classroom where you want, like you want, you're, you're doing people pleasing in the classroom because you want that validation from your teacher. You know, you want validation from your parents. Like, so it starts for many of us at a very young age. And the other thing that I'll say is I, I did a little survey um, because I wanted to understand why as women, we have such a hard time saying no. And I got 15 different reasons back. The top one was people pleasing, but there were other ones too. FOMO, feeling like a little bit of a control freak. Like I just, I just have to do it myself, you know, like versus like asking somebody else for help. I'm just going to do it myself. Um, being addicted to being busy, like loving, like having like the checklist and being able to check things off the list. I mean, there are so many reasons. So actually I'm glad you brought this up, Jen, because I think a big part of getting comfortable with saying no is first understanding why is it hard for you to say no? Is it people pleasing? Is it FOMO? Is it control freak? Well, like, is it that, is it a martyr syndrome? Is it like, what is it about you? Because then if you're aware of that, then you can check in with yourself better. Like before you're, you know, as you're responding to that email, you can be like, wait, am I in people pleasing mode right now? Like, am I saying yes, just because I feel bad saying no? Like, why am I saying yes to this? So having that awareness is is super important. I like that. It just goes one level deeper. It's like when a doctor gives you a pill for something, it doesn't actually fix the problem. Like there's something else deeper going on and it's up to you to figure out what that really, really is and to advocate for yourself. So I appreciate you bringing that one up. That is so good. Okay. We're going to go in a totally different direction. Just like, bear with me. We're going on a new journey. You have invested in over 30 female founded companies. How cool. 
what do you look for in a founder you're considering investing in? Yeah. So look, I've, I've been investing now for, it's been 10 years. Um, it's been a while. And I, I, I feel like I've become so much better and so much smarter around evaluating business ideas. And of course the founder is a huge part of that. Um, I have to tell you that I pay very close attention to how I feel when I leave my first meeting with a founder. Like, do I feel energized? Do I feel like, oh my gosh, I wanted to spend more time with her, you know? Um, do I feel like she's a really good listener? You know, like I, I gave her feedback and she wasn't dismissive of it. Like she she actually was thoughtful and she asked questions. Um, I, I pay attention to all of that. The, the, one of the biggest qualities, honestly, that I look for in a founder is can they be adaptable? Because you know this probably better than anyone, you know, when you're launching a business, like you, you have an idea for what the business is going to be. And then invariably something happens, right? It's like, it could be something happening with externally with the environment, with our world. It could be that, you know, maybe the features that you thought were, were going to be the sticky features, consumers have no interest in whatsoever. Now you have to pivot. So I really love to see that a founder, like that they can be adaptable. I love understanding their prior experiences and how they've dealt with, you know, that situation where you need to pivot, um, you know, so, so adaptability, flexibility, um, being open to feedback, being curious, like all of those things are really important. And then also like, I also look for somebody who is very self-aware in terms of like what their strengths are and where the gaps are and how are they going to fill those gaps, right? Because no one person has everything. So are they, are they bringing on a co-founder? Are they building a board of advisors to fill the gaps? Um, all of that, all of that is really, really, really critical. Oh, that's good. So how big of a role do you play in these businesses? Are you more of like a silent investor or are you heavily involved? It's a great question. And it, you know, it really depends on the company. You know, there, there are some companies where I, I am a silent investor, you know, where we're literally like, I feel like I had that, that first meeting, maybe had a follow-up meeting, decided to invest. I get their quarterly updates over email, but the business is just like really humming. Um, and I'm, I'm really not super involved. Then there are other businesses where I'm really involved. You know, there are businesses where I meet with a founder once a week. I'm, you know, very, very involved in their product development. You know, I'm opening doors for them left and right. You know, they need help with fundraising. I'm introducing them to other investors. And I, I find that like at any one point in time, there's probably out of the 30 companies in my portfolio, maybe three to five companies that, that need my help based on where they are in their business. You know, like there's one company right now that is going to be doing their second fundraising round and they're, they need help. You know, they, they need, they need help with the strategy, which they value the company at. Um, should they go after VCs or angel investors, like helping them think through all of that. You know, there's, there's another company right now that recently launched and the, the app is not resonating the way that they thought it would. So they have to undergo like a pretty major pivot. So it's, it's really fun. Like I love investing because 
I feel like I get to choose the people that I work with and the projects that, um, that I work on. And, and a lot of it is just like, what products do I want to see out in the world? You know? So it's, so it's, it's just something that it's a part of my professional life that, that brings me truly so much joy. I believe it. It has to be so fulfilling. Did you just wake up one day and you were like, you know what I want to do? I want to invest in female founded companies. Like how did you get there? Because I was creeping on your LinkedIn and you've had quite the career. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I was, when I was at Time Inc and I'd been there for about eight years, I was in the corner, you know, corner office executive because I was running the digital business. I spent a lot of my time meeting with founders so like I met the Rent the Runway founders before they launched, you know, I was meeting with like Flipboard and Foursquare and, you know, all of these, the skim, the, the, you know, Danielle and Carly, who, like I was meeting with all of them, like pre-launch. And the reason I was meeting with them was because we were talking about how might we partner, you know, with some of the timing brands. And what I realized was that was the best part of my job was meeting with these founders because even though we would start the conversation talking about a potential partnership, they would then just start asking me questions. They, you know, they wanted advice. And then I realized that only 2% of venture capital funding was going to female founders. It's like, oh my God, this is so interesting. And like, so I started doing it as a side hustle. While I was still at Time Inc., I started investing in female founded startups because it was just something that I really wanted to impact. I wanted to change the ratio. Um, and it was kind of hard because I actually had to get our general counsel to approve every single investment that I made because, right, he was looking for conflicts, potential conflicts. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved it so much. I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to leave and I'm going to do this. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to start my own practice. I'm going to do angel investing. I'm going to do advising. And, um, and also it was like the perfect time for me family-wise. My kids were, you know, like three years old and 18 months old. And I knew that working for myself, I'd have so much more flexibility. Um, so it was just, it was the perfect moment to make, to make that transition. Very cool. Thank you for sharing. So let's go ahead and wrap up this interview with one last question. Hold on one second. <clears throat> you recently launched a new book. Congratulations, by the way. Can you tell us more about Embrace the Work, Love Your Career? Yeah, so my second book, I, I'm I'm just so excited about this one. It um the idea came to me during the pandemic when I saw that millions of women were leaving the workforce and millions more were going through this existential crisis and you know trying to figure out like is this the right career path for me? Should I be doing something different? You know, how do I reconnect with my work? And it was kind of in that moment where I realized I wanted to create something that was different than the myth of the nice girl from a format perspective. I really wanted to create a guided workbook that was beautiful and in four color that had lots of exercises that could really help women reconnect with their work and figure out like, is this the, is this the right career path for me? Um, and I'm just so happy, Jen, with the way it turned out, you know, like it's just, it's really beautiful. There are a lot of illustrations. There's meditations at the end of each section. There are coloring breaks. So there's like a lot of substance in terms of advice and stories and research. But the way that we packaged it, um, it's really special. Like I really have never seen a career advice book packaged in this way. Um, 
And it was really important for me to do it in this way because we're all carrying so much right now. Like there's just so much weight um, coming out of this pandemic that I, I wanted to create something that was a little bit lighter and more joyful. Um, so I'm just, I'm really proud of it. And it's just been so much fun just getting out there, getting, you know, going into bookstores. And I've been doing a lot of talks, you know, at companies for their women's ERGs, which has been so much fun. Um, it's really been, it's been a blast and it's, it's the reception to the book has just been amazing. Where can we pick this book up at? Is it Amazon? Is it Barnes and Noble? Tell us more. Yeah. Yeah. So it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, it's in so many bookstores around the country. Um, so yeah, definitely check it out and connect with me on LinkedIn or Instagram and let me know what you think. Perfect. All right. I will include all the links in our show description. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It was such a great conversation. Jen, thank you so much for having me.